a Podcast One production. G'day, it's Rusty here at the start line of part two of my podcast with racer Jason Bright. If you haven't already, make sure you give part one a listen. We cover the early years, racing open wheelers with Mark Webber, how the door to supercars opened for him, driving with F1 hero Alan Jones, winning Bathurst and making it all the way to IndyCar. We begin this second instalment by talking about his return to Australia and how a plan B really shifted into gear during a Bathurst drive with another Rusty's Garage guest, Paul Radisich, the team run by touring car legend Dick Johnson. You know, I didn't grow up a Dick Johnson fan. I, I, you know, he was always the bad guy as far as I was concerned. But, <laughs> and even, you know, when I was racing against him in 98 um, and 99, you know, he was just a rival, you know, in another car. But um, the experience of, you know, driving for DJR and, and you know, how good a guy, you know, Dick Johnson was... That was pretty special, you know. I, I I probably I learned more about Dick Johnson doing that one weekend, and and um, you know how down to earth he was, and and you know a good guy to be around than you know I did probably in the rest of my career, and and so that that made it pretty special. I I had a lot more respect for Dick after that weekend, after growing up with him not being my him being my hero's sort of rival um, than than uh, than what I expected. Both Greg Murphy and David Brabham have been on the podcast, so I've had a chance to ask both of them about the panels. I'm going to ask you now because you brought it up. You brought up Race of a Thousand Years. Murph talked about it being like driving an aircraft carrier, <laughs> brute. So you know, such a long bonnet. Lots of power, maybe a bit of a handful around Adelaide. What are your recollections of, of that car and getting the chance to drive it? It was it was really weird to drive. I mean, awesome in the fact that it had great power. It had awesome stopping power as well because it had carbon discs. Um, and it was, you know, it was a proper LMP1 car. Um, you know, it was only the Audis that were any quicker than it. But it was very unique to drive. You know, you, you were sitting essentially on the rear tyre, um, you know, with engine and everything all forward of that. It was it was very, very weird to drive. And, you know, Murph and I probably struggled to get anywhere near the most out of it compared to Brabham. You know, Brabs had driven the car quite a bit, um, you know, knew what to expect from it, knew how to drive a car when sitting on top of the rear tyre. And so it was, it was definitely a, a very different beast to drive, but... Um, I, I, I'd say it's probably one of the, you know, most unique LMP1 car or big sports cars, you know, ever made, you know, it was, it was certainly a, a, a very unique car and, you know, what the whole experience of driving for Don Panos that weekend was very unique. I mean, he's, you know, what he sort of brought to motorsport, you know, I remember sitting <laughs> when we did the test at Sebring, we were sitting in a restaurant that he owned at the track at the hotel that he owned. Um, there were bottles of wine from the winery that he owned <laughs> at the racetrack that he owned and we were driving for the race team that he owned. He was, you know, and he invented the nicotine patch and he smoked like a chimney because 
It was, it was surreal. He was just a crazy guy. You know, um, we were waiting for him at dinner because the landing gear wouldn't go down on his private plane. You know, it, it's it was just, yeah, very, you know, crazy guy. Um, loved motorsport, did a lot for motorsport and sports car racing in America, buying, you know, all of the circuits that he did, like Mossport and Road Atlanta and Sebring and... Um, yeah, so he was he was a very interesting guy and a pretty pretty crazy experience driving for him. In that whole period from Gold Coast Indy to Race of a Thousand Years, where were you at as far as the following year was concerned? Because clearly you wanted to keep going if you could in in America, but that was an expensive proposition. You must have been going through the whole machinations of that, were you? And what was happening? Yeah, so I had you know there were options on the table in America and IndyCar, but you know. They were still you know, millions of dollars and we were millions of dollars short, basically. Um, you know, I was, I, I think I was very fortunate to be in a situation where um, I think I signed my Holden Racing Team contract at Bathurst in, you know, when I was with Dick Johnson. Um, what were you doing, having meetings <laughs> sort of at the back type thing or what were you up to? Well, it was, it was at the time, you know, Craig was obviously leaving Holden Racing Team. Um, going to Double O and and they they approached me to drive for HRT. Um, the contract that I signed, there was a cutoff date of, I think it was February the fifteenth. If I didn't have an Indy car drive by February the fifteenth, I had the Holden Racing Team drive. Um, so I sort of had the best of both worlds. I, I you know, extremely lucky to be in that situation where I could go hard and and put everything into trying to find an IndyCar drive. But if I didn't, I was stepping into one of the, you know, probably the best seat in, you know, supercars at the time. When did you call on the IndyCar thing and commit to supercars then? Oh, it was pretty much February the 15th. You know, I, I put everything into trying to come up with the money to go over there, but it was, you know, very hard to find the corporate dollars you needed to go overseas and race. Um you know, I was probably a couple of years early, you know, a couple of years later we had Team Australia and, you know, KV Racing who all had a, a bit of an Australian flavour to them. Um, you know, so I think it would have been probably a little bit easier if it was a couple of years later. But, um, you know, I, like I said, I, my American racing that I did was amazing. You know, I got, I, I was lucky that I didn't, you know, miss out on you know a career in Australia because I had a crack at overseas, and that that's always the risk when you do, you know, go overseas and have a crack at something like IndyCar or F1, and you know that you get forgetting forgotten about here in Australia and end up with you know no drive here. So I was I was pretty lucky that I ended up with uh, you know I felt like the best of both worlds in that regard. Most people when they've come on and and spoken about a certain point in their career talk about rolling the dice in in some way you know for mark weber that year in 2002 getting those those championship those valuable championship points for minardi helped set him on the way as far as formula one was concerned for you to come back from america when you backed yourself jace and and you know maybe it's not something you need to um to discuss in a, in a numbers sense but was it was it a heavy burden financially when you came back from there to sort of embark on the the holden racing team chapter were you Great to drive for the premier team, but were you were you coming back weighed down by that whole US experience? Uh, not really, no. I mean, 
you know, uh, what, you know, if there was one motto I always sort of lived by in my motorsport was have a crack and go as far as you can. And if, if you don't make it to F1 or IndyCar, then you'll have no regrets. You know, if I, if I had just stayed here racing supercars, I would have had regrets. And, and, and that's what I didn't want to be. You know, I didn't want to um, think, oh, I should have had more of a crack at overseas. Or, you know, but I knew that I'd given, you know, getting to IndyCar or, or F1, everything that I could, you know, with what I had. Um, and, you know, I got to race an IndyCar. I got to race, you know, great sports cars and, and Indy Lights cars. And, you know, and I, you know, still, I guess, through the rest of my supercar career, I always sort of kept my ear to the ground and, you know, wanted to do events like Le Mans and wanted to do, you know, other other events. So, um, you know, I didn't miss out on any of those opportunities. And, you know, but if I had have just done supercars, a lot of those opportunities wouldn't have happened, I don't believe. So you come back and you get to race for the iconic team in HRT and, and they're in a an unbelievable phase of, of success as an organisation. You're, you're a part of that and your teammate... To Mark Scaife, who's you know an ultra competitive human being, what was that whole dynamic like? That whole period like, you know, to be a part of to be a part of that. Uh, it was interesting. I, I remember my first day getting to HRT, and and um, Matty Crawford, who was my engineer, walked me through the workshop, and he said, "Oh, you know, welcome to the most hated team in supercars." And I'm like, "What do you mean most hated?" And he's like, "Like everyone, you either love Holden Racing Team, which they did have a massive amount of fans." But everyone else hated him, <laughs> and that you know that that's pretty much you know the, the the story for any successful team in sport. But you know it was it was a good way to put it. And um, but you know there, it was a crazy good period. You know we we obviously won a lot of races. You know the Walkinshaw group back then, and and the Kmart race team. You know there was a period there where you know we, we were sort of dominating the first couple of rows of the grid, and and that was really good to be a part of. Um, you know, then moving across to Team Brock as part of the same, you know, sort of group as well, that was, you know, probably more enjoyable for me. You know, I I think at HRT it was, you know, Mark certainly had the team, you know, working in his favour, I, I felt, and, you know, I had some good times there, but I felt like, you know, it was better moving across to Team Brock and, being a bit more in control and and working with you know Phil Keed, who I built a you know good relationship with, and and I felt like we you know kicked well above our weight, you know punched well above our weight in that period than just winning races at HRT. You know I, I felt like we were doing a a good job for a small team, and um, you know we had you know a lot of good equipment, but I don't feel like it was the best equipment at that time. Um, but you know, it was it was. I felt like we were getting more out of it than than what I was at HRT at the time. I'm really glad that you bring up Phil Keed because that was sort of the nat- natural line of questioning because he'd been over with Pro Drive in the World Rally Championship, hadn't he? And that was the first time you guys, you know, they took a punt, brought brought him over, and and the first time that you guys got to work together, and you would do that several times through, throughout your career. That bond between driver and engineer became actually a really significant thing for you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And, you know, 
it was like I guess that two thousand and three year was was great because you know Phil had only done rallying up to that point. He was trying to learn you know about supercars. He was going to all of the tracks for the first time, and you know we started doing track walks in two thousand and three. I think we were probably one of the first teams to ever do it because Phil had never been to the circuits before, and um, and so. He sort of used me as a as a you know bit of a source of information on all the circuits and you know but I think what that did was we actually learnt a lot about each other and how we work well together and um, and so yeah we you know I've, I've like I said I felt like that you know two thousand and three four period we were getting the most out of those cars you know. That we could credit to you. I mean, these are from uh, friends and and rivals. Paul Wheel, who you were, you know, you were teammate with. He said you always, you know, loved the data and that you you had a, a great understanding of that. Even Greg Murphy says that you you thrived on the technical side, and he saw that in various different you know examples from uh, twenty four hour to panels to you know you name it within that that group that you're talking about. At what point did you did you realise that that was a skill or had that skill morphed from what you were talking about before the learnings of Formula Ford and so on? I think there was a mixture of things. I think, you know, preparing my own car, I always, you know, had an interest in it from that point, you know, so the Formula Ford days. But I, I felt like I learned so much in America working with a good engineer. You know, the you know, my engineer over there, Gerald Tyler, was, you know, extremely good engineer, um, and I learned a lot about, you know, setting up the car, racing on ovals, setups are very important. Um, and it just got, it always got me thinking outside the box, you know, the data, you know, I learned a lot about the data working with him. Um, and you know, there was a lot more data on those cars than what we had in supercars back then. So, um, you know, I, I've I always had a very keen interest in the technical side and, you know, I worked, very hard at finding sponsorship. I work very hard at, you know, making the car go as quick as it can. So, um, you know, it, uh, you know, and I enjoyed all different aspects of it. So I, I, I don't know what, how much other drivers put into it, you know, but I certainly have always enjoyed, you know, the technical side of it and trying to get the most out of the car. I'm never one to look back and, and have regret because you make the best decisions with the info in front of you at the time. I'm a firm believer in that. You could argue that, that 05, within the mix of what we've just been talking about, could have been a, a super year for you, but you embark on yet another challenge for Jason Bride and the whole notion of, of running your own team. When did the idea of starting Brytech or, or venturing down that path really begin for you uh it was i mean it was probably 2003 2003 four you know it was i guess i've always had aspirations to you know to own my own team you know i, I guess you know i liked guys like Cito and that that you know had their own team and and um you know drove their own cars and you know 2004 we're obviously having a good year you know if there was ever going to be an opportunity to find the sponsorship and the backing to do it, you know, it was going to be after that. And, um, you know, I, I initially had the support from Holden. Um, I, I only wanted a one-car team, to be honest. You know, um, I would have been in either a Walkinshaw car um, or a Paul Morris car. And so the transition would have been, you know, 
relatively relatively easy. Um, you know, essentially almost taking a car very similar to the one that I was competitive with, and you know, just running it on, out of a small workshop. Um, and you know, that all sort of changed. I had a phone call from um, the managing director of Caterpillar, actually, who um, is a friend of mine. I sat next to him on the plane going to Canberra the year before and, um, and you know, or actually it was a couple of years before and it was before Lowndes was going to Pro Drive. I actually tried to talk him into sponsoring my car um, at Team Brock and he was sort of, you know, lured to Pro Drive with Lowndes driving the car at, um, with Ford backing and, you know, thought it was going to be great and, and um, anyway, that obviously didn't pan out so well for them and he phoned me up at the end of 2004 and said I want you to drive the Caterpillar car at ProDrive and I'm like um I'm already doing my own thing and and wasn't even going to meet with them and in the end I went and had a meeting with them and you know the the opportunity with Ford you know was made to sound extremely compelling and you know they wanted two cars they wanted another um you know, manufacturing house, you know, to do engines and chassis. And um, so, you know, part of the proviso for me to, you know, to, to get all of the backing for a five-year deal with Ford was that I did two years with ProDrive. Um, and as part of that deal, I made sure that I went there with an engineer, um, you know, obviously Phil Keat. Um, and I went there for the two years, did what I, you know, had to do and, and, um, you know, then moved to my own team, you know, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough couple of years because, you know, I, you know, there was a couple of things. One, you know, my team was sitting over there and it was, had its hands tied because it was attached to me and so they weren't allowed to test. You know, I had two rookie drivers, Matt White and Steve Owen, and the year after Warren Luff, and they weren't even allowed to do a test day. And it's just ridiculous rules like that that, you know, I don't feel like there would have been anything in it. It was just, it was just you know, hurting young guys' careers that, you know, really didn't need to be that way. And all, you know, it was just the wrong people making the wrong decisions, I felt. But, um, you know, the... So it was it was disappointing to see that that was happening, um, you know, and it was also disappointing to leave ProDrive at the time. You know, I had a great year in 2006. Um, there were good people back then. You know, Dave Richards was a great guy. Um, and, I, and I really felt like if I stayed at ProDrive in 2007, we would have had a very good shot of the title in the same way that it would have had a good shot of the title if I stayed at PWR in 2005. But if I didn't move to my own team at the time, it, it would have been, you know, too late, um, you know, if I sort of stayed at ProDrive for a couple more years. It's a huge undertaking, mate, because I can recall working on the Australian Rally Championship at the time. You had cars in there for Michael Guest and Darren Windus. I mean, it was it was bigger than just a supercar operation, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was extremely proud of the workshop we had, you know, and proud of the guys. You know, we... It was, you know, we're, to be honest, we're, I felt like we were really only making headway in supercars right when the money started to dry, dry up because of GFC. You know, we, we, our first, you know, in-house engine was, you know, basically built at the end of 2007 when, you know, Ford 
pulled all their funding. Um, so it was, you know, it was disappointing in that regard because I felt like, you know, we were just making good headway and um, and it sort of all started to go backwards. But, you know, it was as far as, you know, what we achieved, you know, the rally cars were awesome cars. You know, we had a immaculate workshop, you know, 2,000 square metres. We had our own dyno spray booth, you know, um, sub-assembly, uh, CNC machine shop, fabrication area. You know, it was – I was very proud of what we had. Um, it was, you know, just a shame that – you know, we had, we had very good backing, you know. We had, you know, Fujitsu, we had Ford, we had Caterpillar, um, you know, Irwin Tools – all the ingredients were there, it was, it was, but we just as we started to make, I felt the the right ground. It, it was, um, you know, the money started to get very tight. How'd you go dealing with that? How hard was that to, you know, to deal with? Uh, extremely hard. You know, the, the last thing I wanted to do was was shut the doors on Brytech when so much effort had gone into it. You know, and you know, I'd made hard decisions to leave PWR, hard decisions to leave ProDrive. You know as a paid driver to, you know, to, to watch it all build up and be very proud of it. And then, you know, the financial reality of it was that, you know, the sponsorship wasn't there to, to run it the way that we needed to, you know. And, um, you know, I, I think part of the problem was, you know, we the money we were getting from a manufacturer to, to set up a two-car operation and the fact that they wanted all of their own, you know, another manufacturing house, um, that wasn't feasible. If we were just a, you know, like Paul Crookshank was at the time, where we were just getting a car from Triple Eight, preparing it, and not having to worry about all of the design and and uh, manufacture, I think we would have been able to possibly weather it a bit better. One thing I wanted to quickly chat about before we move move on in career terms here involves Le Mans. And 2006, because there was an opportunity there with with Aston Martin and ProDrive, wasn't there? That you were scheduled to do that. Yeah, so I did. I did Sebring uh, with Pedro Lamy and and Stefan Sarazen, and um, it, it all came from George Howard Chapel, who was with ProDrive. Dave Richards sent him out to Australia to you know help the supercar team. Um, and at Tasmania, when he was out there, he asked me whether I'd be interested in having a test in the in the Aston Martin and. I went over and had a test at Val Lunga and it went really well. And they they basically signed me up to do Sebring uh, Le Mans 24 hours and then Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta in 2006. But there was a cancellation of one of our races in China um, and they moved the date one week to have a Winton round and it clashed with the test at Le Mans. So I couldn't do Le Mans. Um, I sat at home watching... Pedro and Stefan and and my replacement leave the whole race at Le Mans, um, and unfortunately they you know, blew a clutch on the last pit stop. But I was thinking, man, this could have been my chance to win Le Mans. But um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a shame that that you know the Aston Martin was awesome to drive. You know, we 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 had a good run at Sebring, but we weren't on the on the Michelin. Whereas they switched to the Michelin at at uh, Le Mans and and were much more competitive. Um, but we still had a podium at, at Sebring, but yeah, it was it was you know very enjoyable to you know to go and do that race with with Pro Drive. You know, they they were 
very professional outfit um, with the Aston Martin. It's an amazing place, Lamar, and anyone listening really must go and experience it. It's such a, an incredible event. You would get back there in, in 2013, but I, I want to tap into your recollections, if I can, of, of Alan Simonson, the guy who was um, you know known and loved in this part of the world, had, had raced at, at Bathurst in both the 12-hour and even the, the 1,000, and that was a, a very difficult year with his passing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was... Difficult for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I didn't have a lot to do with um, Alan in Australia, but I did do Bathurst with him once um, at the 12-hour in in the Mustang with Marcus Lukanovic. So um, got to know him there and, and we got on really well. He also came out and did um, the Gold Coast race with Jason Barguana that year. Um, and so, I, I you know, I got to know him reasonably well in the end, but um, it was... At the start of the race at Le Mans, um, I was in the car actually, and and um, I saw, you know, Alan had crashed, and I drove past, and I didn't, I didn't sort of like what I saw, and um, when I got out of the car, because I actually got out of the car not long after, um, and asked my dad, you know, how's Alan? And he's like, no, they've, they've said he's okay, and and so for that next period you know, I was under the impression that he was, you know, still okay. Um, and then I got back in the car an hour or so later and um, I was in the car for a few hours. And when I got out, my dad told me that Alan had passed away. And and that was that was really tough because he he had a, um, a son or, or a child the same age as my son who was, you know, over there at Le Mans with me. And um, so going back and sleeping in the motorhome, that night was really difficult. Like, you know, and then, you know, it was, it was it certainly, um, you know, it was a tough race in that regard. You know, it's, it was, you know, not very often, I can't think of many races when I've, that I've been in when someone's passed away and, you know, you're on a, you're in the other side of the world and, and, um, you know, when, when someone of your friends passed away like that, that was, it was made it pretty difficult, that's for sure. People say things go together like peanut butter and jam, or a pie and sauce, but what about front-wheel drive cars and a handbrake? Now that's a perfect match. Your chapter with Brad Jones Racing is um, one of longevity, mate. It's, it was a great period for you. Why was it such a good fit? And, and um, obviously it was a you know a change of, of regulations for the category at the time with a with a new car coming on while you were were there and you guys seemed to um adapt to it pretty well straight away didn't you yeah it was you know it was a great period you know i i remember i went to the bjr christmas party the year that i'd sort of signed with them before i was driving there and um i think i, I ran to jr in the car park and, and he was like mate you'll, you'll never want to leave this place you know, trust me, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see out your career here. And, um, and, and that's, you know, it was that kind of way. Like, you know, you, once you were there, you're sort of not looking around for other places to go. And, you know, I've felt like I've found a really good family there. So, um, you know, and it was, I, I, I sort of take my hat off to Brad because, you know, it was Phillip Island 2009. I think it was after I got Paul and the Stone Brothers Fujitsu car that I was racing that year and Brad 
came over and said, mate, if you ever want to, you know, just drive again, get rid of all the team owner stuff and, and just drive again, um, give me a call. And, and so that was what I did. And that's how it all sort of came about, um, you know, that next year. And, and uh, you know, once again, I teamed up with Phil again. Um, you know, Phil was, I don't think, having a lot of fun at Pro Drive at the time. And, um, you know, we got talking and I'm like, well, you know, looks like I might be going to Brad's and do you want me to get him to call you? And, and that was pretty much how that happened. And, um, you know, so it was, it was good to team up with Phil again. It was good, you know, I think that year we got provisional pole at Bathurst in 2010. Um, you know, we got, well, you know, lucky to get BJR's first couple of wins, you know, the, the year after. And, you know, that was really satisfying. You know, it was satisfying, you know, because I did it with Phil both times, you know, at, at Pro Drive, you know, getting their sort of wins, um, you know, in 2006. And then, you know, at BJR, you know, that was really satisfying to see a team that had been there so long and, you know, how happy it made the whole team to get those wins, you know, at a pretty tough time when JR was so sick. You brought up JR, Jason Richards. He was a much-loved member of that team, that family, as you described them before and, and of the sport for for that matter. You would win the the race, the trophy, bearing um, his name after he passed in um, in New Zealand. And I think you famously jumped up on the podium and smashed the light above you and, and, <laughs> and so on. Just just um, share with our audience a bit. Uh, he's much missed, isn't he? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, he, everyone you know, knows how, you know, good a guy he was. Like that's, that's well documented. I think, you know, from, you know, racing against him, you knew he was a racer, you know, he was a hard racer, you know, and... And we had some great battles, but when I was in the same team as him, I saw it even, you know, better side of JR, where you know he was a hard worker. You know, him and him and Wally used to, you know, work so hard on that car, and you know, he he was, you know, he was just a pleasure to be around all the time. Not a bad, not an angry bone in his body. Um, you know, he he was, you know, I, I I as far as teammates go. Um, you know, he was certainly you know, one of my favourite teammates that I ever had to to be as far, and I mean that as far as you know, he'd race you hard, but there'd be no grudges. You know, there was no and there was no hiding anything. There was no underhandedness. He was just super genuine. You know, and for him, even when he he got so sick, he would phone me a couple of times a week and just want to know what's going on with the car and, you know, how are we going to fix this relationship with you and Phil because, you know, we were having some problems and disagreeing on things and he just would not, you know, let up on it. He had to be always on the phone chatting to you when he was driving or whatever. Yeah, he just, you know, and he loved racing. Like that was, that was, you know, I don't, I don't think you'll, I don't meet too many people that are that, passionate about their motorsport and they just live for going racing like he did yeah amazing guy amazing guy your full-time supercars career would stop at um i think it was november 2017 wasn't it at the the newcastle event there was that 
a hard thing to come to terms with. We've had a few years now to, I guess, get used to that. Was it hard to deal with and how have you compartmentalised it? Um, at the time, you know, it was extremely hard. Like, you know, it was very emotional and, you know, I felt at the time, I, you know, that I needed to still sort of be involved some way. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was probably halfway through that year, I just enjoyed, you know, sitting back and, and watching the races again. You know, I I think initially I, I, you know, was trying to figure out, right, how am I going to, you know, still be involved and, you know, be involved with the team or, you know, um, use my franchise and be involved there and, you know, but, you know, I, I don't, I, once, I guess once I'd sort of been out of it for a couple of races, I didn't miss it as much as what I, anywhere near as much as what I expected to, um, you know. And, you know, it was, I felt, you know, there was parts of the sport that I, you know, really loved and that was the technical side and the racing side, but, you know, the, the travel and, and there's other parts of it that, that you, you know, you do get over and, you know, you don't realise how big an impact they have on everything else you're trying to do in your life. But, you know, the, the, certainly the, the racing side of it and, and the technical side of it, that was the part that I was going to miss the most, I felt. Let's talk about life now. Task Force, tell us about that, where you came up with the idea and just to share a bit more about what, what life is like in, in that world for you now. Well, it's, it's funny because the idea came from trying to find sponsorship <laughs> back in the day. You know, so it was an idea I had, I think it was 1999 when I first came up with it. And it was, it was you know, trying to find groups that have a lot of buying power and, you know, a lot of pull, which then can generate into sponsorship. And, you know, I, it sort of came from racing against, you know, a lot of kids that had dads that owned trucking companies and they just so happened to be sponsored by oil companies and, um, you know, so, and, and I saw an opportunity with, you know, and I sort of always thought about it, you know, with, with tradies, helping tradies, helping tradies, you know, by grouping them together and putting together a buying group and generating work for them. And, but, you know, tradies, not a lot of them operate under the same brand. You know, they're not like a big brand. They're all individual businesses, but so they all walk into, um, you know, their suppliers and they all pay top dollar. So we, we help them, you know, get some of that buying power. We generate work for them. We've got our own software now that, um, you know, manufacturers like, um, you know, tap manufacturers and ceiling fan manufacturers use our software to manage their whole warranty process. And, you know, all of our tradies do those, do that work. Um, you know, we do insurance work, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, we've now got a group of tradies nationally, um, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, handymen, um, painters that can do work for national groups, whether it be real estate companies, whether it be insurance companies, um, warranty work for manufacturers of air conditioners and lights and, you know, taps. So um, and it, some of those things have only come about, you know, as a, byproduct of what we're doing initially, which is, you know, being a bit of a buying group for tradies. How much has the University of Motor Racing helped all this? Um, I think it, it still helps a lot. You know, I enjoy, to be honest, I enjoy the technical side of it, which is the software and, 
and um, the development of that. And I enjoy the marketing side of it as well. So, um, you know, and I, I think the hard work of motorsport and, you know, the hours that you put in sometimes is, has helped it as well. And probably my pig-headedness, <laughs> you know, to, to keep on pushing on with it. But, you know, it's, it's I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy I enjoy going to you know the office every day and and working with our small team and and um, you know seeing things develop all the time. And there is a bit of motor racing which I love. So you and I have kind of reconnected, if you will, through the TCR series. So a, a global formula for those that don't know about it: front wheel drive, turbocharged cars, and they're the same here as they are in Asia or, or Europe. You ran in 2019 a, a V-Dub Golf. We saw you back on the podium and, and all sorts. How satisfying was that and how different are they to race compared to a supercar? It, it was good. I mean, you know, I like the formula. I like, you know, the, there's there's certainly um, a lot of good aspects about it. I, I feel like, you know, they've got the formula right in the sense that all the cars are very even but got strengths in different areas. Yeah, cost-effective. Yeah, And, you know, there's no massive benefit in making, in spending a heap of money to make a car that is so much faster than everyone else's because of the balance of performance. And and I, and I feel like they've got other parts of the formula right where, you know, they punch a very big hole in the air, so slipstreaming's good, um, the racing's good because, you know, all the cars make performance in different areas and they're quite quirky to drive you know the first the first couple of laps of a of a tcr race uh you know it's on it's on for young and old and you know there's there's mistakes being made you know and maybe it's certainly in this initial phase when everyone's getting used to it but you know it's it's good racing you know and and um and the cars you know are quite you know are very good to drive in the sense that they've got good downforce, they're on a good tyre, um, and that makes the racing good. You know, I feel like, you know, the fact that you can have a, you know, really good crack and, and fire it in under brakes and, you know, they're, they're, they're a good little racing car. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of aspects to them that make for good racing. How beneficial has that been for you, though? Uh, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I enjoy I, I enjoy. I enjoy racing. I, you know, I enjoyed being out there last year and, and um, you know, running in, in the task force colours as well. So, you know, I, you know, um, like I said, I think the category's got a good future here in Australia. Um, and, you know, I take my hat off to, you know, the, the promoters because they've done all the right things. You know, they've, they've you know, made sure... Um, you know, the first year got up and running, you know, there was a lot of naysayers and they made sure it happened. They made sure, you know, it had good events, you know, this year, um, you know, even though there's been you know, all the trouble with the COVID-19, you know, going into the year, they had a you know, the event at the Grand Prix, you know, they had, um, you know, they've got a race at Bathurst, you know, there's, they've got a Channel 7 deal, you know, free to wear. So, feel like they've they've done all the right things to make the category a success for sure a couple of final ones to to finish here to give fans a bit of a a sense of just how much you love cars and so on firstly the race car that you go to sleep and dream of because you've driven some amazing ones during during your career from the champ car that you recounted on the gold coast to driving for hrt is there one 
But, you know, at a certain place when you're at the peak of your powers just gives you that really, really fond memory. Uh, I think, you know, the, the Gold Coast Indy car, that was an insane car to drive, you know. And, and like I said, it was a peak of Indy cars, period. They were the best cars. It was a Raynard. It was, you know, a 900-horsepower Toyota. It's pretty hard to beat that one as far as exhilarating. Um the Indy Lights car was probably something you really had to grab by the scruff of the neck, but it was an awesome car to drive. Um, yeah, it's hard to choose. I, I, you know, I loved driving the Aston Martin GT1 car that it was back then. My favourite supercar sort of era was probably the PWR Commodore that was, or, the, or, the, or the Cat Falcon, those two were probably you know where where I felt we were getting the most out of the car and in a you know good phase. One that's a little off topic in some respects, but I know as you've gone through business and things like that, it, invariably you probably enjoy good discussions with people that have either mentored or been successful and so on. If you could go for a drive anywhere in any car of your choice and pick some people to go for the ride with you for for chat's sake, they can be. Racing, non-racing people. Who would it be? Where would you drive? What would the car be? Uh, whew, it's a that, that's a hard one. I mean, I enjoy doing roads like Great Ocean Road or something like that. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting you know Jack Brabham a few times. You know, and I of you know watching some of those old videos and what they used to do then and. Um, you know, watching, you know, the Bruce McLaren documentary and that era, I'd love to, you know, hear a lot more about what they were doing then. So someone like Bruce McLaren or, or Jack Braddon, you know, and, um, you know, driving a, a car from their era, I think would be, you know, a, a very interesting, um, you know, conversation for that way. For sure, there'd be some great old stories. You're very fortunate, Jace. I know you feel that way. You've driven for factory teams, great people, Brad and Kim Jones, Ross and Jimmy Stone, heroes like like um, Brocky, Johnson. Uh, it's been a remarkable career, really, when you think about it, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, I feel very fortunate. Like, you know, and, and I think, as I said before, you know, I always lived by the, you know, I'm going to have a crack at trying to make it and, you know, even when I was doing go-karts, you know, that was, if I got to race a Formula Ford once or twice and that was where my career finished, then so be it. I had a crack and I got to drive, I got to race a Formula Ford. Uh, but, you know, to, to have sort of gone on and, and you know, got to race an IndyCar, you know, got to race at Le Mans, Sebring, supercars for 20 years or so, um, you know, win a couple of Australian championships, I feel very lucky. Um but to do it and, you know, do it, I guess, with a lot of the guys that I looked up to, like Brock Johnson, you know, Alan Jones, you know, Stone Brothers, you know, I, I feel like I'm really lucky, um, you know, to have, to have actually sort of been able to do it with them as well. Congratulations, mate. It's been great to 
summarise all that in, in some way. Lots of people have, have been asking for you to come on and, and knowing the, the things that you've gone off and done during your career. I mean, to throw into what you were just talking about a moment ago, uh, a Bathurst victory, you know, more than 570 races that you contested, 20 wins and a swag of podiums. Um, it's been quite a ride and it's been great to relive it with you now, mate. Well done. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. To listen to more episodes, search Rusty's Garage Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the app. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.